0: Well, it is Fed Wednesday on Wall Street. All eyes are on the Federal Reserve today. How many rate cuts will the Fed be carrying out this year and how will the markets react? To get some answers to those questions, we welcome our next guest, Mike Collins. Mike is a senior investment officer and senior portfolio manager for PGIM, fixed income based in Newark, New Jersey. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. What do you expect to hear from Chairman Powell today?
2: Yeah, uh, good morning, uh, Paul and and Alex. Yeah, this is like our our Super Bowl, right? This is about as exciting as it gets (laughs) for for bond geeks like us. We haven't had this much uncertainty for a Fed meeting in a long time. I mean, the way we look at it, there are four different things the Fed could do. One is really not come across as being that dovish, right? Kind of moving the dots down a little bit. Uh, Remember, their last dot plot in March showed a, a median expectation for a hike, uh, this year. So let's say they just lower that so the median expectation is for, for no change this year. Uh, that would be viewed, I think, as being rather, rather hawkish by the markets and probably result in a sell off. The second probability is that they actually lower the dots, still don't cut, uh, but show that they're probably going to cut once or maybe even twice this year. Uh, I think that would probably be okay. Maybe the markets would do okay in that environment. Uh, the third is that they actually cut 25 beeps. And signal that they might cut another time this year. And of course, fourth is that they do the 50. Right. And, and there are people out there who think that that's possible. I would put the probabilities of those four uh, different scenarios at like 30, 30, 30, 10. Right. So um, it's really evenly distributed. So that's leading to all this uh, uncertainty and hand wringing today.
3: Yeah, I like to look at the EIA data. I don't know what you nerds look at, but that's kind of my jam. Okay, but uh, no, seriously. Uh, so, okay, the the $47,000 question, how are you positioned over the next, like, three hours?
2: Yeah, so so interestingly, right, if you look at Fed Fund's futures, what's priced in through July, there's just about one cut priced in. And we think it's actually a pretty good chance that they do cut once or maybe even twice meaning, you know, if they don't do a a 50 today, maybe they do it in in July. Um, So actually, that's something that looks like a pretty attractive way to play this right now, betting that they do cut at least once by the end of July. And you can actually make money in that trade right now. Uh, On the credit side, which is really important here, right? Uh, Because there's been such a big rally in credit spreads in anticipation of a dovish Fed and a dovish ECB. uh, We're actually looking at uh, today's news, if they sound dovish and markets rally, meaning spreads tighten and equities go up, uh, I think you're supposed to take some profits on that trade, right? Because ultimately, it's going to be really tough for the Fed, for the ECB, for, for Trump uh, to, to continue to uh, provide positive surprises to the market.
0: So, Mike, are you one of those folks that are thinking about or discounting into your models a recession maybe sometime in mid-2020?
2: You know, it, it feels like that probability has gone up a lot. I know if you look at all the you know, normal indicators and if you look at the typical speculative excesses that build up later in the cycle that typically lead to a recession, we actually haven't had a lot of them, right? I mean, the banking system is in the best financial condition of, of our lives. Um, so, so that's kind of something to hang your hat on. So we actually think the probability of recession is pretty moderate. That being said, we're really bad. Everybody's really bad. The Fed is really bad at predicting recessions, right? They tend to become self-fulfilling and kind of uh, snowball into recession. So, you know, looking at the business confidence falling pretty hard, looking at China China data really falling off a cliff. and, And Europe arguably is kind of teetering on a recession now. It is not unlikely that in 12 or 18 months, uh, we have a pretty significant global slowdown. And maybe we're just starting to see that now. So you have to position your portfolios uh, for that scenario.
3: So is that scenario worth $12 trillion in negative yielding debt around the world?
2: Yeah, it is. I think it's going to, that 12 is going to keep getting bigger, right? Does that mean Uh, that the
3: recession we see is going to be terrible or does it, what does that mean?
2: Well, um, I, I think there's uh, the, the, the base case is that it's actually not a terrible recession, that it's just kind of more of the same, that global growth just continues to slow, right, driven by these big secular forces, driven by, you know, confidence waning, maybe generally more trade friction, even if Trump and Xi, you know, talk nice in uh, next week in, in Japan. Uh, but that notwithstanding, I think we're in a world of, of more trade friction, more geopolitical friction uh, rather than less. You look at what's happening in Turkey this morning. You look at what's happening in Iran. So, so that's the state of the world probably indefinitely. Uh, so it's just, I think it's just a slow slog towards slower growth, um, not necessarily a deep kind of V-shaped uh, recession. And in that world, you know, central banks continue to be really easy and rates just continue to stay low. And U.S. rates obviously have the most scope to fall of all the big developed government
0: bond markets. So, Mike, I mean, you guys at prudential are prudential, just massive. I mean, almost 800 billion in fixed income under management. How are you allocating, you know, that between, you know, maybe the, some of the safer investment grade uh, securities versus uh, perhaps pushing the risk out a little bit and high yield and some other riskier uh, aspects in the credit markets?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're we're generally positioned in a in a barbell type of. Um, credit structure, and that is, you know, I always say you want to you want to do well in the base case, and the base case isn't isn't that horrible, but you don't want to, you know, really have a big drawdown in in these tail risks, which would be the re- the recession. So barbell we have on is you know there are opportunities in, in high yield or select opportunities in emerging markets, um, you know even in investment grade corporates uh, European banks and u s banks still look pretty cheap to us so so you can add your yield and your coupon and your and your beta in your best ideas in those areas uh, and then the other half or so of a lot of our portfolios are in very high quality bonds and a lot of that are in, are in actually in asset backed securities or Different structured products, like you know AAA-rated commercial mortgage-backed securities or collateralized loan obligations or asset backs, things that have such a low probability of losing principal, and they still have a pretty decent yield or or spread. So to me, that that's kind of the ballast in the portfolio.
0: Mike Collins, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Mike, a senior investment officer and senior portfolio manager at PGIM, uh, fixed income based in Newark, New Jersey. And it's interesting, uh, you know, still, you know, I think still a lot of uh, institutional investors, a lot of professional investors are still willing to put some risk on into their portfolio, despite the fact where we are in a, you know, the economic cycle and where we are with potential economic slowdown and, and but it's just these, this lower rate environment.
3: Yeah, what's also Really puzzling to me, and I feel like this is going to be the conversation after the Fed too, is the interest rate differentials in particular, let's just call it US and Europe, for example, like Germany, and then how it's not actually being reflected uh, in the FX market and how you're seeing just like weird trading happening. It's like what's leading what I think is also a little bit. Confusing, and do the carry trades then in that environment still work? I don't know.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, we saw um, Mario Draghi, I guess, earlier this week. You know, talking about they will. They have lots of tools in their toolbox to you know try to jumpstart the European economy. But you look at the, you know, negative yielding rates in in Germany. You mentioned that you know the twelve and a half billion dollars of negative mm-hmm. y- yielding debt. It's just extraordinary. And at some point. Uh, you know, it has to reverse, one would think, <laughs> one would think, but we didn't hear that from Mario Draghi earlier.
3: New normal, man. It's Low normal. rates forever, not it, for longer, but forever.
0: Forever, I guess. And so we'll see what the, the Fed does later today. Again, uh, uh, that coming up uh, around two 2.30 with uh, Chairman Powell with some of his uh, commentary that we'll be covering that, of course, at Bloomberg Radio. Facebook yesterday jumped into the cryptocurrency game in a pretty big way. They uh, announced the launch of what they're calling Libra, which will launch as soon as next year and be what's known as a, wait for it, stablecoin, which is a (laughs) digital currency that's supported by established government-backed currencies and securities. To get the latest, uh, we welcome our good friend, Lionel Laurent columnist covering Brussels for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, he is based in London today. Lionel, thanks so much for joining us. What's, the, what's new about Libra? There's other cryptocurrencies in the marketplace. What does Facebook bring to the table in your opinion?
4: So I think that uh, this is the first time that a company of Facebook's sites, that's almost 3 billion users they have, has essentially come out with a cryptocurrency or endorsed The space in in the way that it has so that's that's new the second thing that's new is that they clearly do not want to be associated with bitcoin and the kind of cryptocurrencies that have no intrinsic value nothing to stop them being worth nine thousand dollars or a hundred dollars or fifteen thousand dollars depending on which which day of the year it is these this currency is going to be backed by hard assets so in theory it should never be worth more than the reserve currencies backing it and finally I just think we should realize that this is the culmination of many years of experimentation from Facebook in trying to expand in payments. It has had several stabs at getting a payments business going. This to me is part of that. It's not just about crypto. So it's definitely new, uh, whether it's successful, whether it's really some bold new vision or a kind of incremental step in terms of Facebook's business, that I think is the the remaining question.
3: To me, you said the two magic words, in theory. So on a technical basis, I'm kind of wondering how they wind up having Libra stay consistent if it's made up of a bunch of currencies that wind up moving a lot.
4: Well, I think they basically want to be their own central bank in a way. We have... Examples of currencies that are managed in this way that are pegged to currencies. Now, we all know the dollar currency peg. This is not going to be a dollar currency peg. This is going to be a mix of currencies. There's a lot we don't know about what goes in there. There's a lot we don't know about how it's going to be managed. But the point being is that (laughs) their their claim would always be that they have a one to one uh, asset backing every piece of Libra. So, again, in theory, because markets can do funny things, if you believe what they say, it should never fluctuate wildly in the way that non-pegged currencies do.
0: So, Lionel, you know, they, when they made this announcement yesterday, I guess they announced uh, they have 27 or so partners, some of the big uh, credit card companies, Visa, MasterCard, uh, even PayPal. Um, what did you make of the list of companies that are partnering with them? Was it the names you wanted to see? Was it as many names as you wanted to see? Do they have more work to do? How do you view that?
4: Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, look, there is, it, it depends on what, what the ambitions are, um, it's pretty obvious that none of Facebook's big competitors were on the list. There was no uh, Amazon, there was no Apple, there were no banks on the list. Again, you might question whether Facebook again—that's that's direct that's right competition. after Facebook, so there were no big banks. There were a few services companies like Spotify, like Uber. So you can you can sort of try and piece together how in future this cryptocurrency might be used, because this is the big question with any kind of form of electronic money what is the use case if you're just going to fill an electronic wallet with with some money do you have stuff that you can do with it i mean we have paypal already so i think that they have a sort of predictable but pretty small list of partners it is facebook after all i'm not sure that many companies want to kind of be in its orbit uh, today but i'm guessing or assuming their theory is that if it gains traction more people will come if you build it they will come i have no uh, certainty. That's true, though.
3: Paul, do you also know who comes if you build something new and cool when it comes to currencies? Who is that? Yeah, regulators. Oh, that's right. <laughs> They're like, hey, let's <laughs> yeah, we're talk. here. I mean, what I what I found really interesting is that yesterday it felt like congressmen kind of came out in full force, being like unprecedented power, unprecedented experience. And then today you heard from Sheryl Sandberg at Cannes being like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're talking to regulators. It's a process. Do you kind of buy that?
4: I buy that Facebook is totally conscious of the scrutiny that it's under and, you know, companies do funny things when they are under huge regulatory scrutiny, when they're under potential antitrust investigation. This seems totally reckless at first glance, but on the other hand, you could easily see why a company that makes something like 96 or 97% of its money from advertising and is looking exceptionally powerful and concentrated you can see why they might go well let's diversify let's find other revenue streams and as for the as for the regulation part i haven't seen anyone say outright that they would you know ban libra or stop it or properly clamp down on it because it is actually quite easy if you wanted to stop libra you could just ban cryptocurrencies you you could do things so i think that they are going to do everything in their power to quite rightly ask for more transparency let us get in there let us access the data let us localize the data. Remember, this is going to be across many, many countries, and it's going to be an ongoing kind of fight, an ongoing friction over the next year.
0: Lionel Laurent, Calmas, covering Brussels for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from London. Thank you so much, Lionel. Well, over the past several weeks, we've had an inverted yield curve from uh, on several occasions, and that typically for many investors suggests that a recession uh, may be coming. Our next guest says, maybe not so fast. Uh, Our next guest, James Skink, President and CEO of Pentagon uh, Federal based in Alexandria, Virginia, joins us. James, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Again, you wrote this article, Op-Ed Opinion for the USA Today, where you suggest that uh, maybe investors shouldn't be too concerned about a recession uh, following uh, an inverted yield curve.
5: Oh, I think you got exactly right. Um, again, we're just one data point, but we serve about 1.8 million uh, Americans. And so on any given day, we're getting a really good um, consumer data. Uh, that's demand for autos, mortgages, credit cards, and refinance student loans. And basically what we're seeing, consumer spending is remaining extremely small uh, strong. We had a really strong May, came out of a strong April. Wage rates are rising, and that's having more disposable income into the consumer's pockets. Lots of people are working. Unemployment claims are very low and there's low inflation. So, you know, I think the most recent uh, revision of the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis in the first quarter, the economy grew 3.1 percent. So we're not buying into the naysayers. We're seeing incredibly strong demand for our products and services.
3: So obviously the issue with the yield curve is at some point banks don't want to lend any money because they're not going to make any money off of it. That's the whole point, right? You're going to borrow short and then lend long. Um, have you noticed any of that in your business anecdotally?
5: And that's the one difference, Alex, with the, with the credit union. So we can really play the long game. Uh, unfortunately for a lot of the banks, uh, if the Fed does drop rates or a flat yield curve, they're, they're really constrained by the quarterly earning reports. They've got to grow their earnings and continue to grow quarter to quarter without missing a beat, otherwise they get slaughtered into public markets. As a credit union, there's about 5,400 credit unions in America, can really play the long game because we're, we're owned by our members, unlike being owned by a shareholder. So we can continue to lend through the cycle, and we can continue to give competitive rates. Uh, what, what I wrote in my article, what you see a lot of times, what banks are going to do is they're going to really tighten credit Because they have to be concerned because they lend a lot deeper throughout the year that if we do go into a recession, uh, their delinquency is going to go up significantly, which really impacts their earnings. So they start tightening. Then they have to uh, put their expenses across a much shorter number of new consumers, and so they start driving up rates and higher fees. You don't have that in the credit union business, and we're very proud of that, that we can really do what's right for the consumer for the long haul.
0: So, James, what I, I didn't really know about uh, uh, Pentagon Federal is how big you guys are. You're the second largest credit union in the U.S. with over $25 billion in assets. So you obviously, as you mentioned earlier, have your finger on the pulse of kind of the consumer. Let's talk about credit quality right now. We're you know 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Uh, there are some concerns among uh, some creditors that credit quality may become an issue. What are you seeing?
5: Uh, We're seeing still strong. We're not seeing a huge uptick in credit quality right now, and we think it was a combination of the tax cuts last year, put additional income in the Americans' pockets, and also with the rising uh, rates uh, as far as salaries. After a 10-year expansionary cycle, it really has only been in the last, uh, 12 to 18 months that we're starting to see sort of real wage growth with, you know, unemployment below 4%. You're starting to see more income being paid to the consumer. And, and across the banks, too, with their tax cuts, they've been able to pay for talent and uh, take really good care of the customers. So we're not seeing the credit concerns right now at this time. You always have to be concerned with it. But if you continue to sort of if you play for the long haul, make good credit decisions, uh, and don't stretch too deep, you can, you can weather any cycle.
3: So typically, where do you see the cracks?
5: first? Where do you see the cracks first? You'll see it in uh, some some of the auto lending when you start seeing 84 months and even longer financing periods as uh, auto rates continue to rise. Uh, you'll see it in uh, credit card uh, receivables, uh, the delinquency on credit card portfolios. Uh, so those were, were the first two. You know, usually mortgages, uh, the consumer holds onto the mortgage the longest so we always look at a credit card delinquency and auto delinquency to start looking for any sort of cracks in credit quality.
0: James Skank, thank you so much. James is president and CEO of Pentagon Federal Credit Union, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, $25 billion under management. Well, more than a year ago, actually seems longer than that, T-Mobile and Sprint announced their merger. The deal would combine the number three and number four wireless carriers in the United States. And no surprise, the regulators have been studying this deal very closely. To get the latest on where we stand with this saga, we turn to our good friend Tara LaChapelle. She covers deals, telecom, and media for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tara, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, this seems to be the never-ending deal, the deal that just can't get closed. What's the latest on this deal now?
1: So the latest in this saga is that it looks like T-Mobile and Sprint may actually be inching closer to winning approval from the U.S. Justice Department for this deal. They already seem to have gotten a nod from the Federal Communications Commission. So the, the Justice Department wants them to help sort of lay the groundwork for the formation of a viable fourth competitor that would sort of replace or fill the hole that Sprint's going to leave behind when they buy Sprint, which seems like it would sort of negate the whole reason for doing this merger. But it sounds like according to my Bloomberg News colleagues, they're hearing uh, from sources that Dish Network, uh, the satellite TV provider run by Charlie Ergen, is in talks to buy about $6 billion worth of assets from these companies, including Spectrum and the Boost Mobile prepaid brand, in order to help smooth this along and appease the Justice Department. And I guess they're hoping that this will be enough to get the deal through.
3: Um, the spectrum is the jam like that's what everyone wants that's the good stuff right so is it a good thing that t-mobile wants to sell it or not and isn't it good if dish buys it
1: so i, I one of the reasons for t-mobile doing this deal is that sprint has a lot of uh, mid-band spectrum that would be really helpful for t-mobile in building out a 5g next generation wireless network which is something all these carriers are focused on now um so that'll really help them and and where i think it's puzzling is t-mobile is the one that needs the spectrum dish really doesn't dish DISH isn't a wireless carrier as of yet. They're supposedly building a network and are working towards that, but they've basically been squatting on all this valuable spectrum, not really doing much with it for all these years. So it's puzzling to me that DISH wants more spectrum and T-Mobile is the one willing to give some up in order to get this deal through. It's it's a little bit puzzling given what we know about what both these companies actually need. So Tara,
0: are we getting to the point now, if, if I'm Sprint, i T-Mobile, that the divestitures that the regulators are asking me to make kind of make this deal in the first place not worth doing?
1: Yeah, that's where I'm a little bit concerned. I mean, a lot of deals, when they go on this long and they have this many regulatory hangups, they kind of get to a point where you start to wonder, Are is the desire to do this deal sort of clouding the company's judgment? And so many times we see mega mergers not really work out in the end. You know, they don't really pay off for shareholders because the executives maybe took it too far, either in price or what they were willing to concede in order to get their deal done. So I'm worried in this case that, you know, we don't know the details yet. We don't know what exactly... Dish is buying and what this is going to look like but is T-Mobile, T-Mobile giving up something and potentially creating a situation where the competitive market wouldn't really be more favorable to them if this deal goes through than it is now where they're just competing against Sprint which
3: is a much weaker player at the moment. Paul does this make you miss your analyst days?
0: Uh, no, this deal no. <laughs> this deal does not.
3: <laughs> it was a CBS Viacom deal. Yes. That totally makes I like it. that yeah. one to close. Um, so uh, what would Dish do? Like, Okay so it has all this spectrum. Is again that a good thing or bad thing? I
1: mean, that's the big question. So if you ask, you know, most analysts and investors, and, and this tone is sort of changing at this point, but they would tell you that Charlie Ergen's plan all along was to sell this spectrum, that it's worth so much. And, you know, he's not really going to do anything with it. And that that was their goal is to eventually sell out and get a big exit. He insists that they are working towards building this Internet of Things network, and it's going to be sort of a, a beginning stage of them getting to 5G. So it sounds like they are dedicated to building a network, in which case, you know, maybe the spectrum is useful to them. But I think it'll be interesting to see that if this deal comes together with DISH, that whether the FCC puts in place some sort of provision that says DISH can't then turn around and sell this to somebody else, that they need to commit to doing something with these spectrum licenses.
0: Yeah, and they—I mean, they have. I guess he has a—he has a uh, FCC limit to build it with his existing spectrum, and I guess he's mm. just barely meeting the terms of that of those restrictions. So it's really unclear, as you mentioned. I know you spent a lot of time with Dish and Charlie Ergen. It's really unclear what his strategy is. I think investors maybe might even be getting a little tired of waiting
3: because it's super expensive, right? Like that's the whole billions. Thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it underpins the company's valuation at this point. Dish has an $18 billion market cap, which is huge for a mostly satellite TV business losing tons of subscribers every quarter as people cut <laughs> the cord. So, I mean, a lot of people are really focused on the spectrum and what he's going to do with it. And I would I would believe that most investors aren't really looking forward to them spending years on a costly network build out as opposed to hoping that he sells it.
0: Tara LaChapelle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tara covers deals in the telecom media space for Bloomberg Opinion. Joining us in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's been on top of the Sprint T-Mobile deal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide
3: on Bloomberg Radio.